This is Paul Eckert with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look each week at some of the key stories in the region as covered by RFA, and we talk to the journalists who cover them. I'm joined by Eugene Huang, who writes for RFA's English Language Service and edits Eyes on Asia. How are you doing today, Eugene? I'm doing great. It's been a very eventful week, to say the least. Yeah, it's uh, they just never stop creating news, and in the case of Myanmar, our focus today, it's bad news, mostly. Yes, unfortunately. Well, we're going to break the mold today and devote both sections of our podcast to Myanmar because it's the six-month anniversary of the military coup on Sunday, August 1st. I'll be talking to a veteran human rights activist who has worked on Myanmar for 25 years, going back to the earlier military regime that imprisoned leader Aung San Suu Kyi in the 1990s. He actually sees some reasons for optimism in the local and the international response to the military regime and the coup. But first, Eugene, we'll turn to Min Tun of RFA's Myanmar service to bring us up to date on how things are looking in his native country. Today, I'm joined by Min Tun, who is the senior editor for RFA's Myanmar service. He's going to bring us up to speed on the situation in Myanmar, which, as we know, the country is undergoing political and social turmoil with the additional difficulties brought on by a third COVID-19 wave. Welcome to the podcast, Min Tun. Hi, Eugene. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, so first, I would like to start out with how are our colleagues in the country coping with the crisis, both on the political turmoil and the coronavirus? Yeah, as majority of Burmese media outlets are most critical to the military and the coup, we face challenging situations, including intimidations, legal threats, internet shutdowns, and travel restrictions. Local media organizations, which were key components of uh, Myanmar's free press in past 10 years, are forced to shut down. Their reporters are arrested or jailed. Most of the celebrated journalists are on the run or in hiding due to the military hunter's arrest warrant. Uh, nearly half of the um, 87 journalists arrested by the hunter in the past five months are in jail, uh, totally uh, to, in, in number 43 journalists in jail right now. And also, shortly after the coup, the uh, military closed the uh, offices of the um, key media outlets like DVV News, Mizima News Agency, Michina Jane, Tachile News Agency, Seven Days, Myanmar Now, uh, many media outlets, including um, about 40 online news journals and magazines are shut down. Uh, Myanmar's once thriving media landscape was now totally destroyed and deserted. Even it, even if it was not shut down or not arrested, the remaining journalists are struggle. The remaining journalists are struggling to get the truth out uh, from the darkness. Now. As that wave of COVID-19 outbreak hits the entire country, majority of our colleagues, um, majority of our colleagues are, or their family members were infected as well. Uh, it is really challenging time for us as a journalist in Myanmar right now. Mm, I see. Um, I was just curious, um, with the military junta controlling everything. I mean, what, in what way are we able to even get news out of out of Myanmar? How are they sending news outside of the country at all? 
the way we report it is, uh, as we have done before in the past, um, we have telephone communication. Uh, the, the, the good thing is uh, there's a loss of mobile phone in this era, I mean, in past 10 years. So mm -hmm. we, we have our own sources, even before we have um, office in Burma. We, yes. we, have, we have those contacts and we have uh, the network of Ativix and also the, the people who really want the truth out. They are willing to speak, even though imminent dangers or arrests and, you know, um, the abuses. So we have to, um, we have constant contacts with them and we have many ways of communication channels nowadays, uh, including social medias. We, we collect those news and verify and also um, confirm the sources through the social media as well as the um, telephone communication. So which were what we have been doing in past 20, nearly 20 years or RFA. So now, not like uh, in the past, it's a lot easier and stay we, um, in terms of comparison, you know, nowadays people are willing to speak then uh, more than in, in the past in radio days. I see. So uh, as long as the junta is trying to silence it, there will always be people willing to speak. So that's good. Um, next question. So as a person from Myanmar and as a journalist, what are the most shocking or troubling things about the last six months? The most shocking thing or troubling thing for a journalist who came from Myanmar is the military leaders were not intelligent and mature even in past 10 years or semi civilian democratic experience. They did not understand single individual rights and dignity of the people they are trying to govern. Even though there were countless interactions with the open society and free press, uh, they do not see the negligence and the violations that they are committing right now are so wrong. So wrong that no other political or national leader in 21st century will commit. They are utterly blinded by, um, they are utterly blinded and they think all they are doing are right, fair, and just. It is really shocking to me. Yeah, so as an outsider, when I'm observing the situation, I often wonder what is going through the minds of soldiers of the Tamado, you know, attacking their own people like this? Like, are they brainwashed? I'm wondering if you can possibly shed some light on what could be going on in their minds. When the second NRE government, uh, after the uh, USDP government, uh, when the opposition NRE took over the country's power, and military leaders and the military families are, are you know, a little bit side, side um, they are uh, move a little bit aside from the uh, key national role. So they have been, you know, fed up with the uh, like-minded people who try to uh, sabotage the uh, civilian government. I see. And everything they see, uh, they see the um, the NLD and Aung San Suu Kyi are 
skewed, you know, by the um, misinformation, disinformation they got from each other. Uh, they were fed from the um, the social media uh, conspiracy theories. They believe those things, and they always doubt civilians. Uh, government will one day uh, will set them off. Um, so they don't have secure uh, security with dealing with the civilian government, especially uh, NRE government. And their underlying mistrust is very huge, even though in public they are trying to mingle uh, politely, smile, but they really don't uh, see these people are the friends or mm. the leader of the country, you know. So that that key doubt was growing day by day, uh, compounded by the uh, the negligence from the um, uh, civilian leaders. So they are growing. Um, you know, the situation came to this point because they lack uh, trust each other for more than five years. Mm. Right. Okay. So it's a matter of trusting each other and also being able to trust the news and the narrative and who's controlling the narrative, from what I can see. Uh, yes. They, they are, the military was, they are living in the different war. The military and the soldiers and their families are living in separate sphere of information. And uh, this, the way they see the country and the leader are totally different from the public. You can see how they are far apart from the people in the country. I see, you know, I see. Everybody can see it, but they might not see that. All right. So how is this year's version of military rule in Myanmar different from the previous long period of military rule during which you were living, studying, and working? And the previous ones in 1988 to 2000. Uh, 2010. Okay, so, okay, all right. Um, so are there any similarities between now and that period? The, the difference uh, between 1988 coup and 2021, this year's coup, was the military, both leaders and soldiers, were more brutal and cruel to its fellow citizens. Under socialist government in 1988, they were trained to respect people to treat people with dignity. At least military leaders show humility, but this time they are very ignorant and egocentric. These coup leaders have some people, uh, some analysts said these coup leaders had lost sense of rightness and clear vision of the right or wrong. Uh, in a previous military coup, military leadership was comprised of able and educated officers, which turned out to be successful, uh, which turned out to be successful civilian leaders in past 10 years of democratic transition. But now it is more authoritarian and single-handed decision making, which is more dangerous for the country and people. I see. Similarity is that the mindset and mentality of the military leaders. They still think they own the country, and mm. they are so proprietors of the country, people, and the land. Someone who opposes their views 
uh, the enemies of the state, which is which the state is themselves, no other people. That one is the same, unchanged for 30 years or 20 years. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I guess then that means that the current junta has more of an author authoritarian leaning, as you were saying. Is there a risk that this year will effectively cancel the economic, political, and social progress the country was making since 2011? Of course, yes, of course. Because um, one of the uh, senior ministers in uh, the pro-military government uh, in 2000, between 2011 and 2015, he, he told me once that all the progress they have done, all the progress they have achieved in past 10 years were thrown away like water in the sand. He told me that way. Everything's gone. Every progress was gone. Economically, politically, social, everything was gone. You know, due, due to the, uh, the military coup and its uh, violation of uh, human rights, um, the economic activities are all shut down. Investors are gone. And country was into the chaos, you know. Um, even though you can see outside the, um, like earlier days of the coup, you know, you can see people protesting uh, around the claw and on the streets. But there's nothing functioning there. Social progress, economic progress, everything's all gone. And probably you have to make it up in order to get back this stage. I mean, earlier stage, you need to walk at least 10 years or 20 years. That is what some analysts are saying right now. Wow. So it sounds like we're back at square one, unfortunately. Um, hopefully in the future, things can change for the positive, but it doesn't look like it's going to be anytime soon. So last question, what freedoms that people were enjoying a year ago are now gone. Free speech, mm -hmm. That's freedom of expression, privacy, freedom of assembly and movement, all are gone now. Some people in the country are even saying that the entire country is similar to a prison and all the people are prisoner under a very repressive regime. So it sums up everything. You know, you have no free speech, there's a no freedom of expression and no privacy, and also, you can, obvious thing, you can assemble, assemble or move freely, especially in terms of political activities. None, zero. Mm, okay. On some of the um, RFA English service stories about Myanmar, I've seen comments from people that said uh, our country is turning into North Korea. What do you think of that comparison? I think they don't really know. North Korea, but North Korea is the worst example in the war before Obama, uh, before Myanmar right now. Okay. <laughs> because uh, they have their own system of, of uh, you know, managing and administering or controlling people. Right. They, at least their citizens are not protesting. They, their citizens are, you know, one way or other uh, going along with the uh, uh, communist regime, yes. but Obama, no, it's a different way. They know everything's wrong, and which they also know which is right, but they can't do anything. Right, right. 
So the uh, North Korea is, you know, when you see that, you, you will see uh, happy face, you will see the celebration. But in Burma, you don't see those things. I see. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today, Sho Minton. And I really appreciate everything that you gave us for insight onto what's going on in Myanmar. Thank you very much for you having me again, uh, Eugene. Thanks, John Mintan and Eugene, for an eye-opening look at Myanmar's coup after six months. It really is heartbreaking if you follow the country, enjoying what was, while imperfect, at least a shot at better days ahead with democracy and freedom of the press and a freer economy and all those other things that have just been swept off the table for now. Yeah, and like you said, it could take decades to get back to where they were six months ago. That's that's really depressing from the way he was describing it. Yeah, it's, it's really heartbreaking. Despite all the gloom and doom that we heard from our RFA Myanmar service colleague, we're now going to hear from a veteran activist who sees a silver lining in some of the developments of civil society and the way it is collaborating with international society to try to bring pressure to bear on the junta. Our special guest today is Simon Villanis, executive director of the Campaign for the Rohingya and an advocate and activist who has more than a quarter century working on these issues. Thank you for making time for us, Simon. Thank you, Paul. As someone for whom this is not your first rodeo when it comes to military coups in Myanmar, what's different about the current state of play after six months of the State Administration Council? I think what's different is we've seen the rising up of a new generation, Generation Z uh, in Myanmar. We're talking about young people who for the last 10 years um, were were hopeful that things were changing for the better inside Myanmar. And they had uh, their hopes for the future just ripped away by the military. Um, and um, what's, what's interesting is also how, um, how globally connected uh, this Generation Z is in Myanmar. Um, and and what's, very, what's different is how quickly they connected with the Burmese diaspora uh, and the Burmese uh, Americans uh, around the same age here in uh, uh, here in the United States, and um, and very quickly uh, organized to uh, resist this military coup. I think I think that that that's something that's very new is this this generation. It's young. It's also uh, multi-ethnic. It's also not afraid to um, to look at the case of the Rohingya and start to make the connection between what the military did to the Rohingya, particularly in 2017, and what they're doing now uh, to the uh, population in Myanmar generally. So that's one thing that's very different. They are, in fact, a lot of these younger people that you're talking about are, are in fact, the citizen journalists who are getting all this information out despite the controls and uh, the heavy crackdown. Am, am I right? That's that's my perception as a, as, an, as a journalist here. Yeah, I mean, we're getting excellent information uh, out of Myanmar um, from 
from Myanmar journalists and Myanmar activists. You know, one of the groups we work with very closely and have done since, you know, for a year or so, even before the coup, is uh, Justice for Myanmar, which has done excellent research on the Burmese military's business interests mm -hmm. and the foreign companies that are supporting the military by, uh, by doing business with them. Well, that's uh, one of the main thrust of your own of your own advocacy efforts is partly focusing on governments, but partly focusing on businesses and what they should do in a situation like this. Can you give us a little bit of an assessment of the international reaction, you know, UN, US governments like that, what's happening and what needs to happen? And then we'll move to your focus on corporate behavior and decision making in the region. I mean, what we've seen is much quicker action by the international community uh, in support of the, the civil disobedience movement. Um, we've already seen um, several waves of sanctions led by the US government, uh, uh, but also they've clearly worked very closely with the UK, with the European Union. And so we've seen wave after wave of targeted sanctions aimed at the Myanmar military and uh, its business interests. Um, going all the way through to even considering uh, putting sanctions on Myanmar oil and gas enterprises, the state-owned oil company, which is you know, a sanction that was, has never really been contemplated before. I see. And in fact, to, if I may move to the corporate uh, realm, that is one of the main thrusts of what you do with your no business with genocide endeavor. So tell us a little bit about that side of things and where things certainly, are going. Certainly. A no business with genocide is actually a coalition um, that includes our own uh, international campaign for the Rohingya, but also includes um, organizations working on a range of issues, um, most specifically We've been working with the uh, the Uyghur Human Rights Project and other Uyghur organizations and activists to uh, go after companies that are complicit in China's use of uh, Uyghur forced labor uh, in, in factories uh, throughout China. So in the case of Myanmar, where, where's the it's the it's the military related companies, it's the oil flow. How are things going compared to how how far they need to go to change minds and make it out? Yeah, I mean, even before the military coup, we had been successful in uh, putting pressure on a number of companies to drop their uh, business dealings with the Myanmar military. We got the luxury jeweler Cartier to stop selling uh, gems from Myanmar. Uh, genocide gems, as we were calling them. We, uh, we also were successful in getting Western Union to drop as one of its agents in Burma, the Miawadi Bank, which is a military-owned bank. And we had been building a lot of pressure on uh, Kirin, the Japanese beer giant, to end its business partnership uh, in, in two breweries in Burma, which were, again, partnerships with military-owned companies. And so, you know, what we've been doing is, again, very much in line with the, um, 
demands of groups like Justice for Myanmar and other Myanmar-based civil disobedience movement groups is that we've been doing sort of targeted, what we call citizen sanctions um, on foreign companies that are supporting the military by doing business with military-owned companies. Um, and it's a way of getting at the tremendous revenues that the military derives from its business empire. Sure, and then you have, like you said, you have made some headway there. It would not be fair to close this discussion without discussing the Rohingya, given your organization and your history. How have the Rohingya fared since the coup comparatively? They obviously they were not doing well before then, but what's the status for them now? Well, I think you know what what's been uh, understood now is uh, the same tactics that the military used against the Rohingya, most notably starting in August 2017, when the Myanmar military drove over 700,000 Rohingya to flee to Bangladesh. These same tactics are now being used against other ethnic minorities and are being used against the majority uh, Burman population as well. Uh, and so what we're seeing inside Burma is um, amazing alliance building uh, between the, the, the Burman majority, other ethnic minorities, and in particular, including the Rohingya in a way we've never seen before. You know, we've, I've been you know, moved to tears by seeing Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh posting pictures of themselves, raising the three fingers of support for the civil disobedience movement. We've seen, you know, um, civil disobedience movement leaders uh, openly addressing um, the fact that what the, the Myanmar military did against the Rohingya uh, was wrong and uh, uh, needs to be reassessed. And we're now seeing um, we're now seeing the uh, the national unity government of Myanmar um, explicitly uh, pledging to change the 1982 citizenship law. Sure, I saw and that. And to recognize as citizens anyone born in Myanmar. Uh, and really getting at the you know the the complete disenfranchisement and complete removal of rights uh, that we've seen from the Rohingya. So in that respect, I've been I've been I've been hopeful um, by by seeing these changes uh, inside Burma. Indeed, you have you've struck a note that recognizes some silver linings here, if that's the right word, in the sense that you know the civil society is galvanized and they have their international uh, connections and the technological, the internet savvy that earlier generations didn't have available, and also this solidarity against the regime. Uh, we've we've heard it from any number of the ethnic groups, the same thing, the Chins and uh, the Kachins as well. Uh, so I don't know, I, you've been doing uh, work with Myanmar for decades. Uh, I hope that your relative optimism is, is right. With that, I have to uh, Thank you, uh, Simon, for your time and wish you luck in uh, your endeavors here. Thank you very much, Paul. Please join us again next week for another sampling of RFA's coverage. Until then, you can visit our website, rfa.org. Our past podcasts are available on platforms like Spotify, Google Podcast, and iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you have any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. 
Our email is eoa at rfa.org. It stands for Eyes on Asia. I'm Paul Eckert with Eugene Huang, who also edited this podcast. This series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again.